You're listening to Discover Hope with Pastor Tom Leake of Hope Bible Church in Columbia, Maryland. What is it that achieves the truest romance? Undying loyalty to one. Passionate affection for one. True adoration of the one. You have that. You can get some pretty nice romance. That's the way it's going to work. You should have that for God. We should have that for God. In today's culture, marriage is being totally redefined, but Pastor Tom describes it today in light of the passionate journey of making Jesus your all in all, of being completely and wholeheartedly sold out to His convictions, denying what you want, admitting when you're wrong, not wishing for what this earth has to offer, committing to deal with your desires as opposed to recognizing God's, because friend, it will all fade away, it won't last. So who are you married to, Jesus or the world? Now, here's Pastor Tom in the book of James chapter 4 as he continues his message, The Cure for Worldliness. They don't know God. God's holy. They don't have a relationship with God. You think you can have both? They're deceiving you. You can't have both. They love the world. When they stand before Christ, what's he going to say? I never knew you. You didn't live for the Father's will. You live to get everything out of the world you could get. And you look at them, and some of them are your heroes, and you put posters up about them, and you wish you were like them. You can't go that way. Those aren't models of people that love God, that know God. When Jesus Christ returns on his white horse, and oh, yes, he will, and he comes back with a little name on it. What is it called? King of kings and Lord of lords, right? On his thigh and on his robe. And he comes back triumphant on that white horse, and he's going to set up by a war, his thousand-year reign on earth. When he does that, do you think he's going to allow this in his kingdom? Do you think he will love that? You have to choose. You think you can love the worldly fantasies and worldly toys and worldly possessions and play your games over and over and over again, and all you're really saying is, my heart loves the world, and you don't want, you don't want a sacrifice for Christ's kingdom. You don't volunteer to serve. You only volunteer to serve when it fits you. Your heart is married to the world. Are you really even a believer? Do you have God as your friend? Well, God passionately hates unfaithfulness. He hates adultery. He says he will judge adultery. He hates every form of lying. Six things which the Lord hates, just seven which are an abomination to him, right? Haughty eyes, a lying tongue. He hates greed. He hates sex outside of marriage that the world celebrates constantly. He hates all that personal self-aggrandizement from singers and sports stars alike. All they're doing is they're, I say they're a billboard for themselves. He hates that. God hates that. He hates all the crass, dirty humor you hear from the so-called comedians in the evening. He hates it. Do you? Kind of like it? Do you kind of like it? God hates all of it. Read your Bible. This isn't rocket science. Start anywhere. Leviticus would do. Jude would be fine. 
Matthew, Isaiah, Joshua, Galatians. He hates it. You don't need an expository sermon for that, do you? You are choosing short-term pleasure for long-term destruction. You can't have it both ways. What did Christ say? No one can serve what? Two masters. Why? Because when you try, you end up loving one and hating the other is what he said. It just doesn't work. It's not global warming you should be fearing. It's, well, God's not going to warm this world. (laughs) He's going to toast it. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Why would he do that to a world that he enjoys? He did it once. Remember? The flood. Why would God wipe out every man, woman, and child outside of the ark if he was pleased with it? He said he would never do it again by water. But he didn't say he wouldn't do it again. He's promised he'll do it by fire the second time. By the way, there's evidence of that flood on every mountain range on this planet where you see fossils of marine animals. The evidence is there. They've interpreted the evidence wrongly. It happened. And the water of the floods are what we call our oceans. And they were pulled back into the oceans. And you have to look at how geology was done. That happened on this planet. There was a worldwide flood. And there are stories from every corner of this globe, from tribes and families that didn't know each other, and they have various versions of that story, perverted through the years, but still a worldwide flood. That happened, and it's going to happen again in fire this time. God hates it. And just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't. Peter told us about that. They'll keep mocking the coming of the Lord. Where's the promise of his coming? Wasn't that 2,000 years ago, you silly Christians? How does God see this world? It's not like Louis Armstrong, what a beautiful world. It's not that way. What God sees is men corrupting what he made, twisting it, perverting it, lying against it, messing it up. As far as God is concerned, the world deserves to be torched. Jeremiah 10.10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes, and the nations cannot endure his indignation. All the armies of the earth, when God marches, oh my, what are they? The nations are as a drop in a bucket. 2 Timothy 3, 4 says, people of this world are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of who? God. Give them a choice. They'd love their pleasure, but not love their God. That's a problem. You can't have the world and have friendship with God. He's too beautiful and holy. God will not allow you to sleep in two bedrooms. You come join him or you are an adulteress. You have to let go of one. You have to let go of one. Some of you, I bet, are trying to hang on to two. You have to let go of one. Believers who try to have it both ways just don't understand the fire with which they play. Their longings for fulfillment in the world will never be fulfilled in the world, but they will hinder their walk with God greatly, evaporating their peace and joy and vitality. 
Spiritual adultery invites the jealous reaction of God to believers. 1 Corinthians 10.22, it's, it's an interesting way of putting it there. Paul writes with the, uh, the believers that were dabbling with idolatry. He says, or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Did you know you can provoke the Lord to jealousy? And then he, he asks this question, we are not stronger than he, are we? You're going to dabble in the world and provoke the God who loves your soul to jealousy. What are you going to do then when he chastens you? Are you stronger than him? Will you be able to endure? Do you think he'll just leave you alone? You think that something that God claims for himself, he's just going to let go away? You have no idea who you're dealing with. You have no idea the pain that he can bring. He will not let you do that. He's a jealous God. He tolerates no rivals. One pure wife is what he wants. For God is a jealous God. Look at verse 5. Look at verse 5. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. That is kind of like a warning. Do you think the Scripture, here probably the Old Testament Scripture, although he's not exact about which Scripture he means here, do you think the Scripture is literally empty? Do you think that, that God writes Scripture and that the Scripture is just empty? It doesn't matter, big deal, it's lightweight, yeah, yeah, read it, it's not going to happen. Are, are you really that naive that you think that God would write something in Scripture and it's just empty writing? It, it's not going to avail, it's not going to lead to anything? Can you sense some of the emotion from James at this point in the letter? I mean, he's using verse 5 to add extra weight to verse 4 as if verse 4 needed extra weight to be added to it. He's not done pressing his point. Well, we're not sure what, what his uh, scripture was here exactly. In fact, and I, have, I really don't have time to get into any of this, verse 5 is the hardest verse in the book of James to interpret. Nobody agrees what it means. <laughs> it's notorious for difficulty. And if you have different translations, as I was reading the NASB, you're like, what? I mean, you'll find completely different translations of this verse, verse 5. By the way, side note, whenever you find a difficult to understand verse in the Bible, it only proves that the rest of the Bible is not difficult to understand. It's very clear. So when people say the Bible's hard to understand, nobody can agree on it. No, there's only some verses where the Bible is really hard to understand and nobody can agree on it. Most of it is very easy to understand. This one is not. This one's a very difficult one. The interpretive issues are very complicated. So I'm going to make a rather lengthy discussion very short. There are two main views, but each of those views have subviews. One is like the way the NASB translates it. It's referring to God's jealousy for his people. Don't commit spiritual adultery, in other words, because God is so jealous of our relationship. He's made his Holy Spirit to live inside of us so that we will not ultimately be attracted to the world. He'll keep us by his Spirit, in other words. The second is completely different from that. And it's referring not to God's jealousy, but to the human tendency to be sinfully envious. As the King James Version translates it, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy. In other words, the human spirit tends towards envy. It tends towards sinful, envious desires. 
Both translations have their strengths and their weaknesses. Tentatively, I lean toward the first one like the NASB has it. It seems to fit the flow of thought better. James has just been just finished letting them know that they should not be friends with the world. They should not be adulteresses. And so the Old Testament scriptures make this clear. God is a jealous God. God is in a jealous relationship with us. He guards our affections, and he guards them by his Holy Spirit. He put his Spirit inside of us so we would love him and love his law, and we would not continue to drift away and love the things of the world. That's the idea anyway. This is the good kind of jealousy. You say there's a good kind of jealousy? There's a good kind of jealousy. The good kind of jealousy fights for a proper relationship, a proper relationship such as a husband and a wife. He fights for that. And the spirit inside of us who dwells inside of us, he's jealous for our affection. Now, there's no Old Testament verse that is quoted here, but it is a summary of Old Testament teaching and God's jealousy. Exodus chapter 20, verse 5, the Ten Commandments passage, it says, You shall not worship other gods or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? A jealous God. You know it. Deuteronomy 4.24, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Zechariah 8.2, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Zion. Yes, with great wrath I am jealous for her. Wow. His jealousy will burn. Why? Because Israel was his. Why with the church? Because the church is his. He knows a relationship with him is good for us. He knows he alone deserves our affection and loyalty. In the book Knowing God by J.I. Packer, he tries to explain the jealousy of God as an attribute we should be very thankful to God for. And he writes this, what is the nature of this divine jealousy? How could jealousy be a virtue in God when it is a vice in men? God's perfections are a matter for praise, but how can we praise God for being jealous? It's a great question, isn't it? There are two sorts of jealousy among men, and only one of them is a vice. Vicious jealousy is an expression of the attitude, I want what you've got, and I hate you because I haven't got it. It is an infantile resentment springing from unfulfilled covetousness, which expresses itself in envy, malice, and meanness of action. It is terribly potent, for it feeds and is fed by pride, the taproot of our fallen nature. Then he goes on and says this, writes this, but there's another sort of jealousy, zeal to protect a love relationship or to avenge it when broken. It is the fruit of marital affection. This sort of jealousy is a positive virtue, for it shows a grasp of the true meaning of the husband-wife relationship together with a proper zeal to keep it intact. Scripture concisely views God's jealousy as being of this latter kind, that is, as an aspect of his covenant love for his own people. God demands from those whom he has loved and redeemed utter and absolute loyalty and will vindicate his claim by stern action against them if they betray his love by unfaithfulness, end quote. That's what we should have zeal for. Who is our lover? Who's supposed to be our lover? God. We should have zeal for him. God, who is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has loved us with an everlasting love and sent his Son to go to the cross for us. He has shown us what great love is. We should have an affection and a love and a loyalty to him, and we should be jealous for that relationship. Rather than coexist with all the other gods and religions, 
we should have a bumper sticker that says, Christ is my love above all. Above all. Maybe one of you will make it. What is it that achieves the truest romance? Undying loyalty to one. Passionate affection for one. True adoration of the one. You have that. It will get some pretty nice romance. That's the way it's going to work. You should have that for God. We should have that for God. May God forgive us that we don't. May God forgive us that we don't. It's sad, isn't it? An adulterous friendship with the world. It's sad. Do you, do you mourn in your heart? Do you hurt? Do you mourn your sin? And we're still on verse 5. Verses 6 through 10 are about be miserable and mourn and weep. Why do you think he's saying that? I thought Christians were supposed to be joyful. Because if you understand it, we'd see the depth of our sin. It'll make you weep, make you sad. You don't have to stay sad. There's forgiveness. But it should make you sad. If you're bouncing along in life and not thinking deeply about your affections in your own heart, I don't know, God's going to have to do something to get a hold of you. I'm going to try to scream at you. I'm going to try to yell. I'm going to try to do something up here. But one way or another, God is going to get a hold of your attention about that, your affections. You're supposed to love him. What does the Holy Spirit do inside of us? What's he trying to develop inside of us? You don't hear voices. If you do, you're in trouble. What, what is that quiet voice of the Spirit? What is that constant prompting happening in your heart as a believer? To love the Lord your God with what? All your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your might, all your strength, everything. That means when you go to work, you're going to work because you love God. That means you, you put your all into your relationship with God. God is not something you can overdo. You can't be too crazy about God. When Jesus' family came to confront him about the things he was saying, they thought he was outside of himself. That was the passion and love he had for God. I hope that is the same way with us. Third is where we get into the medicine. I didn't get given as much time today, so I'm tempted to go 15 minutes over. But I'm just going to introduce it to you. The third action that James is taking now that he's cut that out of us is he wants to give us some pills to take, some medicine, some ointment to keep this disease away from us. And it's in verses 6 through 10. I'm just going to introduce it for you here. And he starts with this whole idea of God's greater grace given to the humble. Look at verse 6. But he, God, gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. What is the antidote for worldliness? Answer might surprise you. It's not some of the external things that we try to keep our kids away from, which we do need to watch their hearts and all that. But sometimes, again, when we think about worldliness, we think about Oh, my, they're going to get a tattoo. Oh, my, they're going to do this or that. And this is, this is not it. It's not it. If you want to not be worldly, antidote is humility. 
Gee, don't you just wish it said something different there? And the reason why we wish it said something different there is we don't like humility. And we don't really want to be humble. But the main antidote is not a set of religious rules. It's humility. Now, verse 6 is not part of the question in verse 5. It's a statement. It's a new sentence. There is a greater grace that God gives... The assumption here is to believers, greater, by the way, is the word mezona. It's a comparative word, but what it's being compared to is a little bit difficult to figure out. Some think that the grace that is greater is grace is greater than my sin. We sing that. That might have been the first thing that came to your mind. Grace is greater than our depravity. Grace is greater than the temptations. That's sort of the Romans 5 verse 20 idea, where sin increased Grace abounded all the more. And of course, that is true about grace, but I don't think that's what James is talking about here. It seems more to be comparing one measure of God's grace with a lesser measure of God's grace. There's a giving of God's grace that God is generous with, but then there's even a greater grace that God gives. That seems to be the comparison here. You know what grace is, Chorus. It is uh, favor with God that we, what, don't deserve. That's an amazing thought right there, that we would get any grace on the lowest level is amazing. To have favor with Almighty God and know I don't deserve the favor. That's a whole other sermon. But that's an amazing thought. But this is greater grace. I know when most people think of grace, they think that grace is there to forgive them of their sins, right? And that first thing you think of when you think of grace, you know, you're a sinner, I sinned, I don't want to go to hell, please give me grace, forgive my sins, wipe it away. And so that's where we think of grace. But grace is much more pliable and flexible, it's much more controlling of the Christian life than we think of. It's not just the initial grace that we get that saved us and that's a great, amazing grace, but there's grace that continues on as a power, as an effective working of our sanctification after we get saved. So there's this great outpouring of grace to forgive us in the first place and wipe away our sins. Bless the Lord for that, right? The blood of Christ on the cross. But then we don't lose touch with grace. That's not the only grace. There's grace that comes to those who walk with God. There's a grace that we would even say it's a power. Grace is a power. It's an operative and active and present power in the life of every believer. What is it doing? Sanctifying us helping us to learn how to be Christ-like, giving us power so we can be more the way God wants us to be and keep the commandments that He wants us to keep. There is that greater grace. So most people are thinking, you know, it's, it's just that initial grace. You need to think beyond that. There also is a powerful and acting grace. And I want to get into it more, but we don't have time. Here's the key thought. Who is the one that gets that greater grace to help with their sanctification? Answer, those who are willing to humble themselves. And I want to talk about this because that is a gold mine that will explain so much of what's going on in your Christian life if you will grasp just that one principle, which, by the way, Peter also puts in his letter because it's so important in uh, chapter 5. If you will grasp why is it that I'm not making progress in my Christian life? Why is it I'm not making progress to overcome that sin? You just struck gold in this text. 
and it is the hardest, the hardest, simplest, but the hardest thing to do is to humble yourself. But if you do, greater grace. God wants to be in a relationship with you. In fact, he's so passionate about this in the Bible. It's described as a marriage. Will you be his one and only, forsaking this world and all its empty promises of fulfillment and satisfaction? This is what Pastor Tom touched on today as he continued to speak about this temporal earth and the staying consistent teachings of God. With sad yet hope-filled hearts, we want to let you know that Pastor Tom Leak, the voice you've been listening to today, has gone home to be with Jesus. Pastor Tom served the Lord faithfully here on earth for 24 years, pastoring thousands and helping to create a network of like-minded churches in the Mid-Atlantic region. He shared the gospel unashamedly, shining light into this dark world. Pastor Tom will be missed, but we rejoice that he is healed and with his Savior. If you would like to learn more about Pastor Tom and his legacy, visit hopebible.org. Now, Here's a preview of the next edition of Discover Hope. Proud people, completely self-involved. Do you think you can grow in your relationships while not being humble? Tune in next time to hear Pastor Tom give some practical tips on how to talk with God. There's a certain condition your heart should be in. And let me tell you, it's completely opposite of what the world tells you to be. Don't disregard the fundamental truth that Jesus has called you to be His alone and live humbly so that others may see Him at work in your life. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for tuning in for this edition of Discover Hope. You can listen to more messages from this and other books of the Bible by visiting HopeBibleChurch.org. And be sure to join us again right here on Discover Hope. Discover Hope.